This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's Friday, February 3rd, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. 2323. Wanted to note that. Also wanted to note that China is a formidable enemy. Our Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, will not be going there. There is a litany of threats emanating from China. When they have a very powerful and prominent military, more people in their military than any other military on Earth. Uh, the American military costs more, but they certainly have manpower and they have advanced technology in their military, unlike some of these old decrepit fighting units like we're seeing in Russia. So that's formidable. They are pretty merciless in how they police their own people, pretty advanced in the technology they use to do so. They're caging the Uyghurs. They've invented an app that has addicted our youth and can represent a sort of Trojan horse to have access to our information. They have a balloon over Montana. They, uh, what? Let's go back to the Uyghurs. They're like actual cages. And no, nope, no, nope. the big one. And why Blinken isn't going to China is up there floating in the sky near Billings. They've got a balloon. We think it's a Chinese balloon. They might be looking at our missile silos, which are large concrete structures that are probably easily seen from a satellite. So we must be cognizant of the balloon. There's a lot to worry about with China. I'm not sure the balloon is sky high on that list. The nefarious balloon surveillance incident of 2323. You know, we've got bigger problems in our country. Internally, we have a very bad problem of over-policing. I've talked and tried to put it in context that progress has been made, but please don't think that a thousand people killed each year by the police is good. It might be close to inevitable given the amount of gun ownership there is in this country, but it is absolutely something we need to address. And this entire show will be given over to a discussion with the district attorney of Shelby County. His name is Steve Mulroy. He is the man who has charged the five officers and the Tyree Nichols killing. One day, maybe it will be called a murder if Steve Mulroy has his way and wins in court, which is a rare thing. So a few of these cases go to court. Before this interview, I just wanted to reflect on the unit that the five officers were in, the Scorpion unit. Rule of thumb, if you're in a policing unit and the very mention of that name in a court of law is unambiguously inculpatory. In other words, if you're before a jury and they say the name of the unit and your defense lawyer goes, oh no, why did that have to be the name of the unit? You need to change the name of the unit. Now, Scorpion stood for Street Crimes Operation 
to restore peace in our neighborhoods. So I'm sure the defense attorneys will emphasize the peace and the prosecutors will emphasize Scorpion. But there are so many of these elite units that have names that you just don't want mentioned in a court of law. In Detroit, there was the Stop the Robberies, Enjoy Safe Streets unit back in the 70s. But stress is what they put the local populace under along the way they killed something like two dozen citizens. Los Angeles had the crash unit, which, you know, is impactful. It's not necessarily pernicious to hear the word crash. But of course, in court, all the prosecutor has to say, if the prosecutor actually brought prosecution, is the full name of the unit, the Community Resources Against Street Hoodlums Unit. These units... I don't know if they all necessarily need to be disbanded. I do think most of them need to be rebranded, though I hate to give advice to any out-of-control cops. Well, with that in mind, I take you to my interview, which is much longer than a normal interview, but we conducted it today. It was timely. It's extremely important. Up next, Shelby County District Attorney Steve Mulroy. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The now former Memphis police officers, Bean, Haley, Smith, Martin, and Mills, have each been charged with second-degree murder, aggravated assault, two charges of aggravated kidnapping, official misconduct, and official oppression for the death of motorist Tyree Nichols. The man who made the charging decision is Shelby County District Attorney Steve Mulroy. Now, most of Shelby County's residents, million residents, reside in Memphis, a city with an enormously high murder rate, one of the worst in America. You should also know that only Detroit has a higher poverty rate and a higher percentage of the population that is black. Also notable is the fact that Mulroy elected in August of 2022, is the first Democrat to serve as district attorney for the county in the modern era. The last DA, Amy Wyrick, presided over a tough-on-crime regime that was tough on the criminals they actually did catch, but the result of that toughness was an aggressive pursuit of the death penalty, even when those cases were overturned for prosecutorial misconduct and a concomitant rise in murders year after year. Steve Mulroy, joins us to discuss this case and what his agenda is for his city. Welcome to The Gist. Thank you, Mike. I'm real jazz to be here. Uh, as they say, longtime listener, first time caller. Appreciate that. I've been watch. I watched your campaign and I've been watching, of course, from afar since this incident came to light. And I'm going to ask you a couple questions. I don't know how much you can answer them, but then we'll get to broader pictures. Will you accept uh, a plea deal on a charge less than second degree murder? Uh, Mike, that's exactly the kind of question that I really can't answer right now. We got a pending prosecution. Nothing's off the table, but we don't really have an ability to talk about that right now. Are you certain that this will be prosecuted out of your office? It won't be taken away from you. 
Uh, yeah, I think that's the case. Uh, the, there is a state law provision that talks for the appointment of an independent prosecutor, but it wouldn't apply in this case. It would only apply if I made some sort of categorical assertion that I would never prosecute a certain class of cases, regardless of the facts and the circumstances. That's not applicable here. Without the threat of civil unrest, would the city have released the tape in the speedy manner in which it did? It's a good question. I don't know whether it was the threat of violent response, but certainly the intense public interest and demand for speedy release of the video and the fact that be, while the video wasn't being released, every day that was the case, suspicion and distrust of the system just continued to mount. I think that gave a sense of urgency to the city with respect to release, but at the same time, they were deferring to us on, we don't want to prematurely release it and compromise the ongoing investigation. And so that was one of the main reasons why we decided to expedite. Right, right. If you're doing an investigation and that tape is out there, the interviews that you have to do with the suspects is going to be highly influenced by Precisely. what's on the tape. Precisely. They're going to suspects e either honestly or dishonestly. Right. Exactly. So suspects could tailor their statement to law enforcement based on what they've seen on the video in bad faith, or non-suspect witnesses could in good faith get confused between what they actually saw with their own eyes and what they saw on TV. So not just in this case, but in cases across the board, you really want to get your key witness interviews completed before you show the world what you've got on video. Statements made by officials and sometimes through the media beforehand, really warning the public and girding the public that what they're going to see was awful. I do wonder if there was, if you could talk about if there was any messaging conversation, not something that, you know, we sh that, that was in any way pernicious, but you have a responsibility to try to keep your city as safe and free of, say, rioting as you can. So I can imagine there was a conversation, you know, how much should we warn the public? Does that maybe uh, have the risk of tipping over into priming the public for getting them very upset before the fact? Were any conversations, did any, were you privy to any conversations like that? I'm, I wasn't privy to any conversations where that was consciously discussed. Um, I got the impression that police and city officials wanted to prepare the public to you know, tamp down the shock quotient, um, you know, just for public safety reasons. I was somewhat more restrained in my public comments because in my role as a prosecutor, I, I don't really think I should be characterizing the video uh, beyond just sort of general statements. I'm sure you take time and attention. Uh, all your decisions are well thought out. Can you talk about how obvious it was a, a decision it was to level these particular charges against these defendants, maybe compared to other cases that were maybe more in gray areas, or were they? So I think it's fair to say that anybody who watches that video, uh, I think would come to the fair conclusion that it's not ambiguous that the use of force was excessive and that the use of force was unjustified. I think after that, you know, you get into judgment calls about the types of charges to be brought and whether the same charges should be brought to the, all the defendants equally and things of that nature. 
Um, and that requires a certain amount of considered judgment. But, I, I, you know, I do think that it's correct to say that this case is has less gray area and less ambiguity maybe than your average case involving excessive force. I have heard community members and I think a relative of Tyree Nichols say, we will not accept anything less than a first degree murder charge. Perhaps that's to him a term of art, meaning something like the most serious murder charge. The second degree charge, from what I understand, has a sentence of up to 60 years. Could you just explain why first degree wouldn't apply in this case? The straightforward application of a first degree murder charge would normally require that we be able to prove to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendants intentionally and with premeditation set about to kill Tyree Nichols. I don't think that's really obvious from the facts and circumstances. So I think we charged appropriately. So from reading about and following your campaign, you are, I think it's fair to say, and you don't reject this label, a progressive prosecutor, but you are also one who says violent crime is out of control. It was normally the first thing you would say in campaigning. And then you would also talk about necessary reforms in terms of policing, though that wasn't exactly in your purview. Do you worry that this incident, no matter how it's handled from here on, will redound to an increase in violent crime in the city? I don't think so. I, I think it will serve as a spur for needed conversations about police reform, but I don't think it will in any way impair our ability to prosecute violent crime and particularly repeat violent offenders uh, vigorously, which I think is uh, appropriate. If anything, Mike, I've always said during the campaign that reforming the system will restore public confidence in the fairness of the system, particularly in the black community, which is lacking right now. And that can help to encourage the community to cooperate with law enforcement more than they have been in recent years. I mean, I'm talking about tips, reporting crimes, serving as witnesses. And that's really what we need in order to bend the curve on violent crime, which, as you pointed out correctly in your intro, has been out of control over the last decade in Memphis. But Baltimore, in the wake of the death of Freddie Gray, saw police pulling back and crime spiking. St. Louis and Ferguson, wake of the death of Michael Brown, same thing happened, of course, nationally after George Floyd, the pattern repeated itself. Um, maybe with the George Floyd example, there were extra complications such as COVID. But what do you do to ensure that that doesn't play out in your city? I mean, there's always a chance that that could happen. You know, I mean, I've heard of the Ferguson effect, I think, to a certain extent. Uh, a lot of it was exaggerated. And to the extent that law enforcement officials are deliberately not doing their job out of some sort of protest, I don't think that's justified. But I don't really see that as likely here because, as you pointed out, this is not one of those gray area cases. Uh, I don't really I don't really hear any criticism from the law enforcement or law enforcement adjacent communities saying that what we did was an overreaction to the facts. And so, you know, I knock wood as I speak, but I don't think our mission of fighting crime is really going to be compromised. Yeah, that is a good point. In Baltimore, many of the police thought that the prosecution was unfair. In Ferguson, the police would say things like, how are we supposed to do our jobs? And they would 
at least explain the actions of the officer. And you know, no charges were brought. And many commissions, including presidential, looked at that and agreed with that conclusion. So there are different dynamics, but are what you're hearing from, I've read reports about what the police union there says, do you get indications from police or people who you know would speak on behalf of the police that what they say publicly is what they're feeling that this even though these are five police officers a, what they did was inexplicable and a prosecution is warranted the police themselves are saying that i will say this i have heard from people who are in law enforcement or used to be in law enforcement i've heard from relatively conservative slash republican slash quote tough on crime uh, people and everyone has been saying that they thought the way our office handled the situation was was great um, i haven't really been hearing a lot of pushback uh, certainly no pushback from the right if you'll uh, forbid that oversimplification. And so I just don't really think that's a, a dynamic that's at play here in Memphis. Well, it's not an oversimplification. I mean, you ran in partisan elections. And like I said, no Democrats had been elected, even though the, Dem you know, I think, you know, Shelby County, even though it's majority black, is a little more conservative than other counties with those demographics. So I think that does come into play. I don't think it's just, you know, reductive to talk about a right versus left response. I agree. I, I don't disagree with that. You know, what I've been trying to tell people is that in a case like this, it's not really left versus right or black versus white or red versus blue. It's really right versus wrong. And this is a, a clear case. Your agenda uh, to talk, talking about a raft of things. Number one, you always emphasize was reducing violent crime, but you also talked about incarceration. You talked a lot specifically about juvenile incarceration. This is a horrible tragedy and needs to be prosecuted, stipulated. But in some ways, does this event, especially early in your tenure, which listeners should know is rare because it's an eight-year tenure, Tom, DAs in Tennessee are elected for eight years. Does this happening so early, and I don't want to be insensitive about it, it's terrible that it happened, but is it an opportunity? Do you see this as an opportunity to emphasize and advance many of the things you were talking about? I think it's fair to say, as I've already publicly said, that if there's any silver lining to be taken from this very dark cloud, it's that it opens up some space for us to have a broader conversation about police reform, not only in Memphis, but in around the country. And Lord knows there's a lot of reform that we need. And uh, you know, to the extent that we can try to have some good come from this, I think that's something that the, the family would favor and I, and I think a lot of people favor. And we'll be back after the break to continue our discussion with the Shelby County DA, Steve Mulroy. This episode is brought to you by the Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about the Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few, Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general, and he told a, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee 
But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So I think of, uh, bear with me on this somewhat extended analogy here. I couldn't help but thinking of the Jerry Sandusky case with Penn State because the dynamic there was, it was such an aberration and you could say, well, there are general issues of athletic departments having such power that you can't check them. Or there are general issues of, you know, entitlement within the ranks of powerful coaches, let's say. But in But the reality was other departments looked at that and said, well, that's not us. We would never, that's, that's off the, that's so many standard deviations away from our problems. Do you, have you thought about other departments? I mean, I know you're part of a national conversation where over-policing is a problem. Do you think this is going to be a lesson for other departments or might other departments say, well, that's not what's going on here. I think that there is a natural tendency for other law enforcement agencies to get out in front and say, hey, we don't do that. That's not our culture. We have the best trained people with great records, and we don't have to worry about that. And that's a a real danger. But, I mean, no, that's true in any of these kinds of situations. You know, Jerry Sandusky, uh, just to take another example, you know, some of the worst abuses of the CIA – that we heard about in the 70s, could have easily been cordoned off and said, oh, well, that's not the norm. But we nonetheless had the church commission, we had legislative reform, we had tighter oversight. You know, I mean, there's ways to make sure that people understand that it doesn't have to be as bad as this particular case in order for us to say that we need to change the culture. We need to improve the training. We need the George Floyd Act passed. We need better civilian oversight, et cetera, et cetera. Can you tell me the most important parts of the George Floyd Act that you endorse, even if they wouldn't have changed the situation that we're looking at in your city? Some of the things that the George Floyd Act requires um, have already been done at the local level. You know, we, a few years ago, banned chokeholds and no-knock warrants, and owes the duty to intervene, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, those are all, I think, unobjectionable, but maybe not as important because a lot of local jurisdictions have already adopted them voluntarily. But I would say um, giving the Civil Rights Division of DOJ, my former place, subpoena power when it does pattern and practice investigations is an important one. 
um, restricting qualified immunity. There's a provision in the George Floyd Act that uh, makes the mens rea standard, the mental state standard for civil rights violations in this context, to go from willfully, which requires that you prove the defendant consciously was aware of the illegality of their actions, which is tough, to just reckless disregard for whether the force was excessive. I think that's an important one as well. Um, demilitarization, you know, with the federal government. I mean, those, those are some of the important ones from my perspective. Tell me about qualified immunity. This is the idea, so listeners understand, that would expose a government official or a police officer to a civil suit if they do wrong. Um, I've, I've heard debate about it and I wonder how much it would change. Wouldn't a police union essentially just get insurance so that the individual cop would be indemnified and how much would an individual cop on patrol, how, how often does between a swing of a baton and not does the thought, Oh, I wonder if down the line I could get sued over this. How much does that really come into play? No, I think that's an excellent point. And I'm not really thinking that uh, restricting qualified immunity, which, by the way, is an entirely judge-made-up doctrine. It's got no basis in the original intent, if that's your thing, uh, of the Constitution. It's got no basis in statutory law. It's just a a, a doctrine that judges started making up. Um, I'm not looking at that so that I really think that in the average case, an individual officer would have to pay out of their pocket. Already, most of the time, the cities indemnify police officers. So either in your example, the union or the city itself is going to reimburse those individual officers. But the idea is if they have to pay those damages, then the cities will start getting hit in their pocketbooks and they will take corrective action to try to prevent these kinds of abuses in the future. And and if I could, as long as we're on the subject of qualified immunity, there's a, a real toxic development in qualified immunity doctrine that people don't know about. Under the Supreme Court case called Pearson, courts used to have to first decide whether something was excessive or not. And then they could move to the question of, well, maybe it wasn't a a violation of clearly established law, which is the standard, and therefore you get off on qualified immunity. Well, now you can do it in any order you want. And you can say, well, it's not clearly established, so we're not going to get to the question, the merits of whether it's a violation. The problem with that is if you don't have cases in your jurisdiction with similar facts that have been adjudicated as violative, then you never can get to a clearly established violation of the law because you can always say, well, Your Honor, there is no case on point similar facts in this jurisdiction that has been adjudicated on the merits, so dismiss with qualified immunity, and we're done. And that's that's a real problem, I think. Do you think that the goal of having a majority black police force in a majority black city, and it is, although I think there, you tell me Memphis is something like in the high 60% African Americans and in the low 50% African American police force. How important do you look at that still, given that there were five black police officers killing this black motorist? Yeah, my understanding is the city itself is like 65% or North black. The county is just a little over 50% black and the Memphis police department's about 58% black. 
I think diversity is important for community trust and to tamp down the natural suspicion that heavily policed minority neighborhood residents would have. But as we've seen, it's no panacea. Uh, you know, they, the activists talk about blue trumping black, and there's a culture within the police to force that, you know, transcends the race of the officer. Like I said before, the far more predictive factor is the race of the citizen involved rather than the race of the police officer. So is diversity important? Yes. Is it good that we've achieved diversity? Yes. Is that the end of the, the, the you know, is that the solution? No, no. Right. But of course, not a panacea, but you're talking about diversity. The merits of it were based on things like to convince the public that they're not being policed by people different from them, sort of perceptions and optics. Do you think in actual terms, a majority black police force will police differently beyond just how they're perceived to police? That's a good question, Mike. I mean, you know, your hope is that people with similar backgrounds might understand the situation that the residents are undergoing better and that might improve policing, maybe, or, you know, like you put it as public perception, but that, you know, a greater trust on the part of the community could lead to better police community relations, which are so important. You'd like to hope that's the case. Um, I think it probably is the case somewhat, but, you know, we probably hasn't been as helpful as advocates of uh, diversity in the police force, say from a couple of decades ago, had hoped. So how do you know how to do it? Your department hasn't had an excessive poor force prosecution. So you, the hundred or so prosecutors who work under you, I would assume few have ever prosecuted a cop, uh, certainly for nothing as serious as murder. Do you talk to Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison? What's the technique about how to draw an experience when there is no muscle memory, at least within the department? That's a good question. So I have consulted with other DAs around the country, and th I think this is somewhat responsive to your question. I, I assigned the prosecutorial recommendations in this case to my newly created justice review unit. This is a conviction integrity unit, except that we also look at sentences too. And its principal mission is to look back and see where we screwed up, where there were wrongful convictions or wrongful sentences. And because of that, we need to have them very independent and objective. So they don't work with law enforcement. They don't work with the rest of my staff. They are housed physically separately, report only to me. And that same objectivity is extremely useful in these police use of force cases so that they really do bring an objective standpoint as to, is this the one where we actually prosecute or is this another justified use of force? And I've staffed them with extremely experienced defense attorneys, um, you know, who've got decades of experience between them. Now, you're right, we don't have a lot of experience prosecuting police, but I think the skills transfer. When your term is up in 2030, I could scarcely think that far. So if both of our health holds <laughs> out and the, the one kidney you chose to keep holds up, <laughs> you should know Steve is an altruistic kidney donor. And we look back and we say, all right, judge me on these markers I put out. What are they? Is there a number of murders? Is it a percentage, de 
percentage decrease? Is it this p- prosecution? What should we look back on as your self-assessment report card? Well, first of all, I want to congratulate your research effort. The kidney thing, that's a deep dive. My daughter's pod- cut. My daughter's podcast, which was great. You know, I mean, you really know your stuff. Um, so uh, I think... I would want to measure it by the extent to which we've achieved reforms. So, you know, wrongful convictions going down, racial disparities in the system going down, um, use of restorative justice and alternatives to just regular incarceration going up. I mean, those are the metrics that I'd like to focus on. Now, obviously, I would love the other metric of crime going down too, and I I want that to be part of the mix, but I also know at the end of the day, sometimes we're at the mercy of demographic or uh, economic factors that, you know, affect the rise and fall of the crime rate. But, you know, I think those, those are all the metrics that I'd want to be judged by. Steve Mulroy is the district attorney for Shelby County, Tennessee. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. It's been a real pleasure. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Peru, Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>